You take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Jonah. That's where we're going to be, the book of Jonah. We won't be there for as long as we were in the book of Colossians, although Marty said that he didn't believe that I could go through the book of Jonah quickly. Uh, He didn't think I could go through any book quickly. So we'll see if we can prove him wrong. He's going to look uh, prophetic this morning, though. We're only doing an introduction because we're observing the Lord's Supper. I think that was the confusion, I'm guessing, with the lights, Brandon. Yep, yep. Uh, We are not professionals when it comes to technical stuff like that, but poor Brandon can be forgiven. I imagine as the lights were going out and coming on that sweat was starting to uh, come to his forehead and his heart was racing. I probably look better in the dark, frankly. It would have been... Would have been uh, okay, but uh, I wouldn't have said anything if you hadn't turned him back on, Brandon. You should have just pressed on ahead. We're going to start by reading the first three verses of Jonah chapter 1, and then thinking through the characters that we'll be presented with here. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. As we read the introductory verses of Jonah chapter 1, we are introduced to the prophet of Israel. Uh, But this book is not the only place in the Bible where we encounter the prophet Jonah, the son of Amittai. Let me read to you now from 2 Kings chapter 14, just a few verses, beginning in verse 23. Listen closely, it says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned forty-one years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. Now, in those verses from 2 Kings 14, we learn two things. First, that Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel during the time of Jeroboam II. And the second thing we learn is that Jonah prophesied to the northern kingdom that God would expand their borders under Jeroboam. And so it would be a time of great prosperity and peace. It would be a time of great achievement This was Jonah's message. Now, think about that for a second. If you are a prophet of God, that is a pretty good message to be given to go and present to people, isn't it? I mean, a lot of times we read the prophets in the Old Testament and they are not saying good things to the children of Israel, let alone when they're being ruled by a wicked king. But you are probably going to be very well received. If you show up announcing that the borders are going to expand and the kingdom is going to grow. Um, Peace 
prosperity. Now, military success. That was Jonah's message to Israel. But now, all of a sudden, Jonah is given a message that is very different, one that he does not want to preach to a people whom he does not want to preach it. He is a prophet of Galilee, we learn from 2 Kings. That's Gath Hefer, the region of Galilee, much to the Pharisees in the New Testament's dismay. Jonah is mentioned several times by the Lord Jesus, and Jonah plays an important part in the prophetic foundation of the New Testament. He plays a very important part. This little book, Jonah's book, will be used by the Lord Jesus twice to illustrate to Israel the nature and the sign of his coming to them. So Jonah is an important character in this story. But this book is not about Jonah. Now, Israel as a nation, uh, they did not deserve the blessing that God had gave them under the reign of Jeroboam II, the blessing that Jonah had showed up to prophesy to them. They did not deserve this blessing. The northern kingdom of Israel at the time of Jeroboam was not faithful to God. You say, well, how bad could it possibly be? I mean, we're not always faithful to God. So what were they doing? Were they missing the occasional church service? or neglecting some of the sacrifices they were supposed to offer? How bad exactly were things in the northern kingdom if God would send to them Jonah to expand their borders and on and on? Well, when the northern kingdom of Israel had broken away from the southern kingdom after the great reigns of King David and King Solomon that we are so familiar with, the new king in the northern kingdom immediately set up the worship of two golden calves, in place of the worship of the one true God. There were similarities in how they worshipped these golden calves at first, but the calves were worshipped instead of the God of Israel. The Bible indicates strongly then in Hosea chapter 13, the opening verses, that by the time of Jeroboam II, some 120 years later, that they worshipped these golden calves by offering human sacrifices. Now that's about as evil as you can get in your worship to not only forsake the worship of the one true God, to embrace the worship of two golden calves. When, by the way, they have in their national history God's profound judgment against the worship of these calves and their flight from Egypt. Not only do they worship these two golden calves in place of God, but they do so at the murder of God's people. They had ordained a false priesthood. They had rejected the moral authority of God's law. They had embraced all of the sexual sin that we are so familiar with today, but which God describes as an abomination to Him. They were corrupt, exchanging bribes for miscarriages of justice so that the wealthy could get away with what they pleased at the expense of the poor. They were not at all the holy people that God had called them to be, and they showed no sign of repentance. They did not deserve these blessings. At the same time as God was prophesying these short-term blessings of prosperity and calling them to repentance, God was using the same, at the same time the prophet Amos to declare great warnings of judgment to the northern kingdom. 
Here is Amos chapter 4, verse 1, speaking to Samaria. Now, Samaria was the capital city in the northern kingdom. And here is what the prophet Amos is saying in parallel with the prophet Jonah. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring wine and let us drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness, behold, the day shall come upon you when He will take you away with fishhooks and your children with fishhooks. You will go out through broken walls, one straight ahead of her, and you will be cast into Harmon, says the Lord. So come to Bethel and sin at Gilead's every three day transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer your sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce those freewill offerings. For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord. So he sarcastically invites them to go to Bethel and and sin. Bethel was the place where Jacob first encountered Yahweh God. He raised a pillar there, a monument to Yahweh God. The name Bethel, which he gave to it, means house of God. And it was at Bethel that Israel now offered these sacrifices to the golden cows as if they were worshiping the God of Moses. Gilgal were there invited to multiply their transgressions. Multiply how so? Gilgal was where Saul in 1 Samuel 13 refused to wait for the prophet Samuel to arrive and instead began offering unlawful sacrifices to God himself. And now the nation of Israel perpetuated their own idolatry at the same place, offering sacrifices to golden cows instead of to the God who had saved them from Egypt, the God who had saved them from the Canaanites, the God who had brought down the walls of Jericho, the God who had destroyed the Philistines. These golden cows, they worshipped at Gilgal. Amos tells Israel that God would lead them away with fish hooks, that he would break down their walled cities and lead them away single file, both them and their children, with hooks in their noses as if they were cattle. That did happen, by the way. This is Israel at the time of Jonah. This is God's people at the time of Jonah. But the book of Jonah is not about Israel. In verse 2 of this book, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, that great city, he calls it. Quote, for their wickedness has come up before me. Nineveh is the great city of the Assyrian Empire, the dominant empire of the day. The place where the Assyrian kings would visit, the place where they would later call home. Nineveh, the place where the people decorated their dwellings with human skulls. Not artwork of human skulls, actual human skulls. Their kings, one after another, would brag about the enemies that they had conquered, not content to just have had victory over their enemies, but they would brag about the torturous execution of their enemies. You can read some of these things for yourself. Uh, They are captured and restored in the British Museum The great archaeological discoveries from the great Assyrian kings, one wrote, 
I flayed as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skins over the pile of corpses. Some I spread out within the pile, some I erected on stakes upon the pile. I flayed many right through my land and draped their skins over the walls. Nineveh. Another word from a king after battle. I felled 50 of their fighting men with the sword, burnt 200 captives alive from them, and defeated in battle on the plain 332 troops. With their blood I dyed the mountain red like red wool, and the rest of them the ravines and torrents of the mountain swallowed. I carried off captives and possessions from them, I cut off the heads of their fighters and built a tower with them before their city. I burnt their teenage boys and girls. There are worse, more gruesome accounts that I could read that should not be read in a church. This is Nineveh, that great city, as the Lord calls it in Jonah. This is the place that Jonah was to go to. But the book of Jonah is not about Nineveh. This book is not about Jonah, it's not about Israel, it's not about the Assyrians, it's not about a fish or a whale. This book is about my God. I want to read to you now the opening paragraph of the word biblical commentary, which I brought up with me. This is written by Douglas Stewart, and the opening paragraph describes the message and the purpose of the book of Jonah. Now listen to this. On one level, the message of Jonah may be boiled down to a warning to the hearer and the reader. Don't be like Jonah. Throughout the book of Jonah, Jonah displays a readiness to receive mercy and blessing himself and a stubborn reluctance to see his enemies, the Assyrians, receive the same. But the point of the story goes somewhat beyond the teaching of the audience to love their enemies. It also places great emphasis upon the character and power of God. God's servants cannot expect, one, to oppose him and get away with it. Or two, that he will somehow be unfaithful to his own character of patience, forgiveness, and his eagerness to forestay harm. The book, in other words, is about Jonah, but it is also about God. Jonah hopes all along that somehow God won't turn out to be consistent with his own well-known character. But God is consistent throughout in contrast to Jonah's hypocritical inconsistency. What happens to Nineveh and to Jonah happens precisely because of what God is like. The audience of the book is thus invited to implicitly revise their understanding of what God is like if they have indeed shared Jonah's selfish views. What selfish view? That God exists to give me blessings and to destroy my enemies and to remove all the obstacles from my path. That God exists to conquer my opponents and to give me strength for all my achievements. 
that God exists so that I might achieve all of my own ends. So that I might see my own will done on this earth. That is not Yahweh. That is not the Most High God. What we will see of God in the book of Jonah is remarkably consistent with what we will see of God if we look at the person of Jesus Christ. And now that's who I hope to turn your attention to this morning, Jesus, as we begin to focus on the Lord's Supper. Let me read to you a portion about Jesus, one that I think will be familiar to many of you from both John chapter 1 and John chapter 3. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. All was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life and the life, the life of Jesus was the light of men. It was the hope of mankind. And the light shines in the darkness. That's not an accident. That doesn't just happen. Jesus was sent as a light to shine in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. John 1.14 And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. Now this from John chapter 3 will also be familiar. But listen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not Believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, again, those verses are really familiar to those of us who love the Bible. They tell us that God sent His Son into the midst of spiritual darkness to shine a light there. That the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. That God, think of this for a minute, loved the world. The world that hates him. The world that despises him. The world that persecutes his people. That rejects his law. The world that doesn't care what he has to say or what, they would, what he would call them to. The world that mocks him relentlessly. That has devoted billions of dollars and countless hours of energy to try to debunk his very existence. The world that is consumed with teaching in its higher education that to believe in him is foolishness. The world that would attack his people relentlessly and compare them to terrorists who fly planes into buildings. John 3.16 tells us that God loved the world and sent His Son into the world among His enemies to live and to preach to them. And the darkness of this world would not understand Jesus. 
1 John 1.12 offers hope. It says, Jesus came to his own, and his own would not receive him. But to all who would receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. That is how God looks at his enemies. Lifelines of hope, messages of salvation, and to all who will believe, adoption into his family. This is the character of God that is on display in the book of Jonah. It is a humbling and amazing thing to think about. This is the character of God that is on display in the gospel of Jesus This is the character of God that would rescue Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah from captivity, knowing that their ultimate destruction was imminent. He would rescue them anyway. This is a God who sends missionaries to places where they will be persecuted and killed, both in New Testament times and today. This is the consistent, unrelenting character of God. Slow to anger, as Peter describes it, long-suffering, desiring that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 The Jesus who died on the cross to save before your saving God, make no mistake about that, Before your saving faith was placed in Jesus Christ, you were a rebel as worse as any of them. The Jesus who died on the cross to save us is the Yahweh who commanded Jonah to go and to preach to his enemies. He bore our sins, the faults and the injustice of his enemies. He bore those sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, is Peter writing as he quotes from the book of Isaiah. So I hope, as we go through the book of Jonah together in the weeks ahead, and as we reflect on the character of God that is presented to us, that we see Jesus who sacrificed himself for us to save us from the judgment of God, that you will find the character of God on display here and that that character will seem to you worthy of your honor and devotion. This is a God who can be trusted with your life. This is a God who can be trusted with difficult tasks. This is a God... This is my God. This is my Father's God. This is the God of my children. This is the God of my household. This is a God who has not left or forsaken me. And that's the testimony of many of you too. I have not earned the sonship that I've been given to God that I should be called an heir to His kingdom. Nevertheless, Jesus Christ paid for that position for me anyway. It is simply within his character to receive those who were once his enemies and to make them his friends. That is God. That is God in the book of Jonah, the book of Genesis. That is God calling Abraham. That is God calling Moses. And that is God calling you. And Christian, you have been given the responsibility, the privilege to do just what Jonah has done here. 
just what Jonah's been commissioned to do. To go out among your enemies, and more importantly, the enemies of God, and proclaim a message of his judgment and his salvation. Not because there'll be some promise of great repentance, but because it is simply within his character to extend that offer and to receive any who believe in the name of his only son, Jesus Christ. That is a privilege. And that's what we should remember this morning as we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us the idolatry of our own heart when we turn the privilege of serving you into the idol of self-worship. Protect us from the temptation to pursue our own plans with great negligence to what you've called us to. Bring about repentance in our heart that would drive us to our knees before you to declare your intimate knowledge of us, of all the thoughts of our head, and to offer our lives in living worship to you. Father, we know this is not for the faint of heart, that your calling and commission in our lives is not easy, though you will bring about joy and peace in the pursuit of it. But that we will embrace instead hardship for your name, with the peace of Daniel, with the certainty that your will will be done and that that ultimately will be better for us than our own will being accomplished. Thank you for your son Jesus, who in his final moments of prayer during his pilgrimage among the darkness of this world, cried out to you, that he would lay aside his own will and that your will would be done in his life. You have exalted him to your right hand. That at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That Jesus, this Messiah, this Savior is Lord. We remember the work that he did to accomplish this exaltation this morning. We remember it and I tremble before you. It was a rescue mission to save your enemies. And Father, I am grateful for that salvation. Thank you for my relationship. Thank you for my forgiveness. Thank you for my heir to salvation. Thank you for my place in your kingdom. Thank you for the wealth and the riches promised there. Thank you for the peace and the happiness of your people there. Help us to bring glory and honor to you now. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.